Hello, welcome to episode 18 of the Double Double. My name is Kelly Hogan, and joining me on the other end, as always, David Dixon. David, what's up? What's going on, Kelly? It's a beautiful day here in Connecticut. Also joining us on the podcast today is a woman who has been a national college sports reporter since 2011, covering both college football and college basketball. She's currently a senior writer for The Athletic, Nicole Auerbach. Nicole, thank you for joining us this morning. How, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And uh, just to warn you guys, there might be some little whimpers in the background. That is my dog. His name is Red Auerbach. So I feel like that's acceptable for this podcast. Um, but he's feeling a little needy today. So I just wanted to warn you. He's sitting right next to me. So he is getting attention. But he might want more. I, I think that might be in the discussion for best pet names of all time. <laughs> well, I get asked all the time if I'm related to Red. So I just felt like it was the opportunity to go all in on that. Like the first person I told about this was like Tom Izzo. And he was like, he like rolled his eyes. But then like, <laughs> you know, other basketball coaches love it. So so we want to hit on a variety of topics with you because, I mean, you, you kind of cover the college landscape from all angles. But I'm always just a little interested in, in how um, people who are successful kind of got their starts. And I, I know you went to Michigan and, and wrote there. But was it always a dream of yours to cover sports? No, it, re- it really wasn't. Um, you know, I thought I was going to go into the world of business somehow. Um, my dad ended up um, owning two different companies over the course of his career. And I was just kind of around that. And I assumed that's what I would want to do. It was pretty like math and science growing up. Um, and then I just kind of stumbled into it at Michigan. Uh, you know, I obviously like I read a ton of sports. I read Sports Illustrated cover to cover every week. And I guess I didn't realize that those were real people doing the jobs, like that it was a real job and it wasn't just this like kind of fairy tale land. Um, and so I just remember talking to a girl who became a good friend um, right after we moved into my dorm room. She was a sophomore and we were talking about our dream jobs and hers was like she wanted to be a surgeon and like it was, you know, obviously like that's a great thing like, you're gonna help people. And she actually did go to med school and like went into that field. And mine was like, oh, my dream job would be to write for Sports Illustrated. And her best friend worked at the Michigan Daily Student Paper, and she was just like, well, why don't you just go to a meeting and see? So that's sort of how I fell into this. Um, And I went to my first uh, meeting for the sports section at the Daily the day after App State. That was my first game as a freshman at Michigan. And I went to the meeting the next day and I mean, you know, you're a freshman in college. So I'm just like trying to figure out some stuff to get involved in to make friends. And I was just so intrigued by like these four football writers, these seniors kind of scrapping an entire special section that was around the season. And it was around Chad Henney, Mike Hart, Jake Long coming back and wanting to go for a national championship. And (laughs) I watched them scrap this whole thing and kind of start from scratch about like what the hell happened and I thought that was really interesting. I made a couple of, you know, friends and signed up for a story on Club Ultimate Frisbee, which was terrible. Um, like the story, not the team. And it just kind of went from there. And, um, you know, it, I think it a lot of it just started of, as like, wow, like I love sports. This is the first time in my life I'm not playing them. So I want to be around them. Um, And then it just kind of went into this, like, I'm really enjoying telling these stories and like, you know, learning how to become a better interviewer and, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, uh, you know, that's kind of it. It all went from there. That's definitely sounds like an awesome upbringing. I have a guy who I played high school baseball with who wrote for the daily a little bit. And from what he posted on Facebook, he 
he seemed like he was loving every second. My, I was wondering how you kind of chose the athletic because I kind of remember where I was when I first read on Twitter what the concept was. It was really intriguing. It's a subscription service where I think the talent was like, we're going to take the sports page back. So kind of what appealed to you about The Athletic and kind of how did you get involved with them? Well, you know, it's, it's going to sound kind of crazy because it was less than two years ago. But you've got to think back about, and it's probably when you first heard of it, um, it was so much smaller. And that's when I signed on. Um, you know, at that point, this was two summers ago. So this is the summer of 2017. I'd been at USA Today almost six years. Um, my editor, our college sports editor at the time, was joining Stuart Mandel to launch this college football vertical. So they were talking to me about it. And at that point, The Athletic had local sites in Chicago, Toronto, um, Cleveland, and Detroit had just launched. And that was it. That was like the, the size of The Athletic. And we were going to be their first national vertical and kind of... Um, you know, kind of show that they could do national as well as local. And, you know, it was really scary and it was a really tough decision. Um, you know, it, the job would be similar because I was covering college sports for USA Today, but also totally different because you wouldn't have to, like, confirm every little bit of breaking news or the backup center at UConn, you know, went through surgery and have to write 200 words. And it was, you know, you could just focus on the big stories that, we all want to tell most anyway, um, the in-depth stuff. And, and it was, um, that was really compelling and that was really interesting. And, and so was the idea of getting out of the newspaper model and trying something different because, you know, newspapers, as you guys know, as everyone knows, you know, have been shrinking. Like when I was in college and saying I wanted to try sports journalism, everyone's like, it's a dying industry. And I'm like, well, people don't want the information. People want great stories. It's the, 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 the system is, is kind of broken because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, everyone put up stories on the internet for free and didn't put the paywalls like they do when you had to buy a physical newspaper. And so, you know, I liked the idea of trying something different and, and if it didn't work, it didn't work, but the newspaper model wasn't working either. And, so for, for those two reasons, and obviously, you know, Stuart Mandel is a close friend. My editor was joining it. Um, I, I took the jump. And it's been very cool to be a part of, A, something that's different and getting people used to paying for content and not valuing our work at zero cents. Um, and also, you know, being coworkers with some of these great writers that I'm friends with, some of them I just admire from afar, and getting to be part of like a writer's venture like that and with great storytelling. And, you know, I've gotten to tell stories that I don't think I would have gotten to, you know, if I had to do 10 other things, you know, that day at USA Today, um, I would have gotten to some of these stories, but I wouldn't have gotten to tell all of them or gotten maybe the time um, to, to really flesh out these stories and not have space constraints and just kind of tell the story the way it deserved to be. Yeah, I think you guys are given the creative freedom to, you know, you don't have clickbaity articles. And so yeah. you're really writing about articles that are of like true interest to you and it kind of shows. And I think you guys are starting to break out into the podcast space a little bit as well. Yep, yep. podcast and video, um, but not like not like people standing and talking video, like storytelling video um, and document mini documentary type stuff. I'm just kind of curious, what, what is the best thing about covering sports and what is the worst thing about covering sports for a living? 
Well, the best thing is that on a good day, and there are lots of good days, it doesn't feel like work. I mean, because you're the, you, the reason people got into this is because they love writing, storytelling, reporting, and also love sports. Because if you didn't love sports, you would just cover something else. Um, so, you know, on a day that you get an incredible game or you're finishing up an incredible feature, like those days are awesome and they feel great. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the relationships that I have through this job, different coaches, different players, you know, ADs, people that I still keep in touch with, like that's been incredible. There's really awesome people in this space. Um, and then I would say the worst thing is a lot of people don't understand that, their enjoyment is my job and that it's nights and weekends, that the schedule is unpredictable, that I'm going to miss weddings and birthdays and different things because it's nights and weekends. And I think that, you know, I've had friends who didn't quite understand that would text me during a game as if I were just like watching it on my couch. Um, and I'm like, no, I can't just like chat. Um, I'm on deadline. I'm, I'm writing. I'm working, um, you know, and family members, too. And so, like, you know, just kind of that adjustment period of like, yeah, you think this is super cool, but I'm also working <laughs> while you're watching this cool thing. Uh, like my dad would like always text me about like if it's if I'm covering a close game, like he would text me about the game. And now he understands like I'm not going to text him back or I'm going to respond and be like on deadline, can't talk. But he'll still send me messages like his thoughts about like, oh, blown call or this person's getting hot or whatever. And, and he's doing that to connect, connect with me and be like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm I'm watching this thing that you're covering. So like we're bonding. But, like, he gets that I can't talk. But a lot of people, like, that's the hard part because to them it's entertainment and fun. And for me it's work. So it's like there's just a, you know, there's just a different way of approaching that when someone's covering something. Like, yeah, like, I'll get a bunch of texts like, wow, that's awesome. You're at the Final Four. Um, And then just, like, some of them will realize, oh, you're in, like, your most high-profile and high-pressure event of the season where you're feeling like you need to do great work. So like I won't bug you too much. Like it's like both things can be true at the same time. Yeah, I've I've definitely been guilty of one of our good friends is a graduate assistant coach at St. John's right now, and I've definitely been guilty of sending him a text about some game realizing, oh wait, you're actually coaching this game. Right. You can't re- <laughs> you can't reply to me. But kind of go- going back to what you were saying about the freedom that the athletic gives you as a writer and writing the stories that you want to write and have the discussion around. What is the process of you choosing a story to write? Is it, are, do your editors tell you, hey, obviously with the NSA tournament, you had to write about that, but can you, can you kind of come up with your own stories and, and topics that really interest you? Yeah, a lot of times, um, you know, it, it's like that. And, and, and obviously, like if you have a great editor you have a relationship with, there's a give and take and you kind of like toss around ideas. Um, and sometimes it's like, you know, we need to come up with a unique angle on like Alabama and we need to, you know, we need to hit on them or there's certain subject areas you need to hit on, but you can come up with the angles. You can come up with the way you want to tell the story. Um, so it's a give and take. I mean, it's, I I don't know what the percentages would be, but yeah, some are coming from the editors, some are coming from me. Um, a lot of times I'll find, so I just did a story recently, um, about this high school football player in Minnesota who almost died in a fire um, and basically like has one full hand um, and he plays football and he's going to play junior college in Minnesota um, in the fall. And I found that story because a player that I followed, I don't follow that many current college football players, but one of the ones I did follow retweeted a screenshot of a Facebook post about this kid. 
And I was like, wow, that's incredible. And like nobody had written about him. And so like, that's not something like my editor would have had to been following that random player and on Twitter in that moment to see that. So like, that was just something I observed and then just did some digging, got in touch with their high school coach, the mom, the kid, and like set up a trip to go there. Um, and my editor was like, yes, definitely. Like here's, let me organize a photographer to go with you. Like that, that's how that one worked. Um, so a lot of times, like that's how stories come about from like my perspective. Like I pay, make the pitch editor signs off on it. Go, go do it. Um, but yeah, there's certainly other times where it's, it's coming the other direction. Yeah, Nicole, David and I were both avid readers. And that article you mentioned, I actually did read it. I believe his name was Tacarius Ware. It was, it was tragic, but it was definitely a great read. And then going way back, uh, I think it was last football season you wrote it. You relived the Appalachian State's upset of, of <laughs> Michigan. Yeah. I remember just watching that game. I, I think I was in, I don't know, maybe fifth grade. And just that block field goal and everything, that brought back some some really great memories for me. But kind of transitioning to some present-day topics, it's it seemed to me that ever since the college football playoff was implemented that – it was an inevitability that sooner or later the field would expand from four teams to at least eight. And and personally, I'm kind of opposed to expanding the field because I think it would dilute what what to me is pretty much the most exciting and most meaningful regular season in, in all of sports. But from your understanding and based on some of the conversations you've had and, and people you've spoken with, do you think the college football playoff will expand? And, and if so, how soon? Well, a good question. Um, you know, obviously I did some reporting back in December about people wanting to have a conversation about the size and structure of the playoff. And five years in, is it serving the goals that it was designed to? <coughs> Sorry. And, um, you know, so I think understandably when you have five power conferences involved in this and four spots, I think people were prepared to not make the playoff every year. Um, but I don't think people were necessarily expecting like the SEC to get two teams in one year or, you know, kind of just um, the possibility of, you know, multiple leagues being excluded multiple times, like three in a row or have their champion not be included three times in a row if you're the Big Ten. Um, the Pac-12, you know, so far out of the picture, Notre Dame taking a spot. And so you have, you have multiple power leagues out of the playoff. Like, all of those different things. I mean, I think people understood there were possibilities, but I think that there were um, compromises made and concessions and things like putting the element of a conference championship into the criteria to offset some of those concerns, right? To show that, yes, the um, conference championship games are still valuable. Regular season's still valuable. Things like that. And so I think that's where the idea of having these conversations stems from, about we want to make sure those elements of the criteria are being used the way that we thought they were going to be. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it's it's in the early stages of, of conversations, informal conversations, wanting to be more formal, talking about this stuff um, and the structure. And I think that, um, you know, that that's going to be a slow process. Um, you know, it took a long time to get to the point of, of having a four-team playoff. Um, even once everyone was pretty much on board with a playoff, there were a lot of, you know, many months that would pass in between kind of slow developments in this process. Now, do I think that this, this the size and structure will stay for the next seven years until the, the initial contract's up? That I'm not sure about. Um, because, you know, that is a long ways off. And if and if there are people that are concerned five years in, I mean, are they going to want to wait seven more? 
that's that's going to remain to be seen. But maybe there are changes to the criteria or different elements that would that would satisfy people in the meantime. I don't know. So I, so to answer your question, I think that the the feeling of inevitability is certainly there, and it's just a matter of you know where these conversations are, how how they can be resolved, and then w- do you try to make a change before the next seven years are up and the end of a contract, which would be obviously a natural point to change the structure and the setup of something, um, could you wait seven more years? So, so basically the question is yes um, and no. Like, who knows at this <laughs> point? It's too early to, to figure that out. But, um, but I do think, you know, those, these are conversations that other people who are far more important than us are also having. So, you know, there could definitely be the seeds planted for like, you know, slow change. But again, this is college football. Things do not happen quickly. And, um, so even if everyone's on board, which they're not right now, cause obviously the sec loves the way things are and loves their championship game. Um, it would move slowly. So I think, you know, you just got to keep abreast of it every couple of months when people meet in person, see if people are, you know, having phone conversations, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is something that would certainly not happen overnight and even wouldn't happen like within a year. I think like th- these are longer processes. Yeah. I, I disagree with Kelly. I'm, I'm all in favor of expanding to eight, mainly just because I'm, <laughs> mainly just cause I'm, I'm selfish and I want to have another weekend of watching really good college football. And I just think that there's going to be way too much money on the line. If you get to have an extra, you know, two games that's the from the television contract, the, the money will just be too too great to to pass up. Kind of one one question I have is obviously you've covered college football on a national scale for many years now. Is there a program or a coach that you just enjoy the most? Kind of like, oh, they're they're coming up, you know, it may not be their best season, but I just love being around this coach or, or, or this program, this town. Yeah, there's a bunch that are great to deal with. Um, one of them I'm working on, we we're doing this off season, like deep dives into like the state of each program. And they're like 3000 words and depth chart, like beyond the two deep breakdowns and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm currently working on one on Duke and I love working on stories on Duke and I love getting down there because David Cutcliffe is just a delight. Um, you know, when you when you sit and talk with him, you get a bunch of stories about like Peyton and Eli, of course, but you also get like all of these like life lessons. So one of the things that he's trying to get me to do these days is become a morning person. <laughs> so I've told him like, you know, I struggle with that. I used to be good at it, but now I'm like, no, like, you know, it's nights and weekends. I'm just I'm tired. And he gets up at like 430 every day or something like that. And he just every time like. You know, a lot of times when he does phone interviews, it's like eight in the morning. So he'll be like, did you make your bed? Like, what time did you get up? <laughs> um, you know, he, he'll always be like, Nicole, people never say like, I regretted waking up early today, you know, and they, they would regret sleeping in and rushing and this and that. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. So I'm working on it. Um, but yeah, so like it, it, everything just veers off into crazy directions. But I, I did a profile of him. Uh, and kind of like, you know, how he's fit so well at Duke and, and how he develops quarterbacks and all that stuff last fall. And so I, I spent a whole day with him and it was great. And, you know, it's just it's so enjoyable. And, you know, like the, that whole day and these are, you know, football coaches are more paranoid than basketball coaches. 
And the whole day he was like, you know, I'm in meetings. I can do whatever with him all day. And he go to practice, et cetera. And the only thing, there was one thing that was off limits and it was one specific thing about their opponent that weekend. Everything else is fair game. And that's also really rare. So like I enjoy, you know, those coaches who are just kind of like, so they've been doing it for a while. They're just so comfortable in who they are. Um, and they're just interesting beyond football. Like he, you know, we talked a lot about, um, growing up in like the segregated South and, and different things like that. I mean, there, it's just, that's what I enjoy when I say, you know, you build these relationships where it's not just about sports and you really get to know, um, you know, people in that way. And so I, you know, I think David Shaw at Stanford is very similar because, you know, he you can talk about anything with him. But, you know, Dave, he's not trying to make me a morning person. David Cutcliffe has given me a specific goal that I'm trying to achieve and need to. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, that's too funny. Uh, Nicole, for those listening that don't know, you also you covered the 2012 Olympics in London and then yeah. the 2016 games in Rio. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that was very special for you covering probably the most heavily followed sporting event in the world. But there is one specific topic that I, I really wanted to ask you about. I was I was reading through your archives prior to you joining us and saw that you actually got to take swimming lessons from Ryan Lochte. Yes. What was that experience like? Yeah, so um, this is on YouTube if anyone wants to find it. Uh, I kind of leading into Rio, I had been covering. So I got thrown on the swimming beat right before London and really, you know, was kind of just flying by the seat of my pants for a lot of it and trying to figure out what was, you know, how to build relationships, who was going to be great, what was important. And then in that four year stretch leading into Rio, I really focused on all that stuff. And I went and visited different, different swimmers while they were training and, and kind of, you know, just gained my foothold in the sport. And, um, you know, Ryan Locke was training in Charlotte with his coach, Dave Marsh, and I was building relationships with both of them um, throughout that, like, kind of off se- the off cycle, the, the other three years. And I thought, you know, it would be fun content and a fun story to do would be to have originally my idea was to have like the best in each of the four strokes, like show you how to do it or show me how to do it. Cause like, this is some, I'm someone who cannot drown, but not like I, I never swam competitively. Like I don't know how to do the butterfly, you know, and, and things like that, which you could tell in the video. Um, and then it was just sort of like, that would be complicated. That would be hard. Why not just get someone who's great. I am her and swims all four strokes. So I pitched the story to Ryan and his coach. They were like, awesome. Yeah. Come down. And, um, and so we did it. And so I made sure not to like practice anything ahead of time. Cause I was like, I'm going to earnestly try, but I don't know how to do these strokes. So like Ryan's going to teach me and we're going to kind of go through that because I think it's really interesting when you watch people who are the best in the world at stuff, you don't always realize like how hard and how technical everything is. And so, you know, I'm just a regular person trying to do this stuff and I look like I'm drowning in a three foot pool. (laughs) And then you watch how easy it is for for Ryan Lochte. And I thought he was also an excellent teacher, explained stuff really well. Um, But it was a really, really fun project. And it ran during March Madness. (laughs) And I got so many messages. Like I, you know, you're, you're covering press conferences, you're in the hallways, locker rooms. And I got all these coaches being like, Nicole, what did I just watch? (laughs) What did I watch of you swimming with Ryan Lochte? Um, and so, yeah, that was really fun. Um, and so it ran a couple months before uh, the Rio Olympics. And um, it's still on YouTube. It still survives. And um, I think, you know, I get every once in a while, I get a bunch of people asking about how the heck did that come about and how 
how bad my butterfly is, which I'm well aware of. It looks like I'm drowning. <laughs> what was Lochte as, you know, in in the public perception, especially after the Rio Olympics when they had that whole thing about getting robbed and, and then he wasn't robbed. Is he like that in person? Is is he kind of just like like the bad boy of swimming in person or is that just a, a unfair perf- uh, persona that the general public thinks of him as? Yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed, you know, talking with him and and, and he, I, I think he is, um, you know, I think he's a genuinely nice guy. Like, I, I don't think that he has a malicious bone in his body. And I think that one thing that has been really eye-opening was, because again, I was in Rio. We had a bunch of people working on that story, including myself. We had a reporter who spoke Portuguese and is from Rio. Um, and we like continued to report out that story. And there were a lot of things that like, you know, the gun wasn't on his forehead. You know, there were a couple of details, but like, you know, the videos and all these things matched up where like they thought they were being robbed because people were yelling at them in a language they didn't know um, and pointing weapons at them. And so like, obviously it spiraled out of control and became a national, th- like a international story. Um, but it was interesting because being in the center of that storm, like I see how media narratives get shaped and everyone kind of ran with what the police said. And instead of like, we had a coworker who was like, Hey, this is a corrupt police department. Like we're going to investigate everything, not just take what they say. And you know, we kept reporting out stuff and people didn't necessarily, I mean, a lot of people did read it, but not everyone did. And so for a lot of people, the narrative ended with, Oh my God, he made this whole thing up. And I saw, you know, those same people who wrote columns, people who did different things, never walk it back or follow up on it. And it was really interesting because, you know, we just kept reporting and we just kept talking to lawyers and and all of these different little incremental things. And it wasn't what the public still thinks happened. Um, And so, you know, that was really interesting to to go through, um, you know, and, and, and I felt for those, the other swimmers who basically got like stuck in Rio and they were like, that told them they had to pay like $40,000 to get their passports back after they were like pulled off planes. Like there was all this crazy stuff happening. Um, and it's still one of the more surreal weeks of my like career because it was just like something crazy was happening every like half hour. Um, but so, yeah, so I think that that and in some of the narratives around that do paint Ryan Lochte in a certain way to the public that, you know, has not been my experience with him. I, I found him nice and thoughtful and engaging And I think that like a lot of, um, you know, he's certainly not type A, like a lot of the swimmers are. And I think that's where the initial kind of personality and image started. Um, And he played into that and he he would admit that too. But I think, um, you know, some of the stuff related to Rio that kind of reshaped or or maybe hardened that image um, were, I think, unfair and just kind of people who kind of, you know, paid attention to the first 10% 10% of that story and then kind of ignored it afterwards. Um, but no, I, in general, like, I think it's just the, the jock image compared to like these type a personalities that usually are swimmers because of the schedule and because of the sport and you're, you're spending so much time by yourself and all of that. Um, so I think that's sort of overall where his image comes from. So Nicole, the last thing I wanted to hit on before we do some rapid fire, quick hitters, Muffet McGraw, the head women's basketball coach at Notre Dame, she made some waves at the women's final four for her impassioned response after being asked about the lack of female representation in college sports. 
For those who didn't hear, here is the reporter's question, and what follows is Muffin McGraw's answer. How important, as your career has gone on, and, and we lost past Summit, how seriously do you take being that voice? Did you know that the Equal Rights Amendment was introduced in 1967, and it still hasn't passed? We need 38 states to agree that discrimination on the basis of sex is unconstitutional. We've had a record number of women running for office and winning, and still we have 23% of the House and 25% of the Senate. I'm getting tired of the novelty of the first American, the first female governor of this state, the first female African-American mayor of this city. When is it gonna become the norm instead of the exception? How are these young women looking up and seeing someone that looks like them, preparing them for the future? We don't have enough female role models. We don't have enough visible women leaders. We don't have enough women in power. Girls are socialized to know when they come out, gender roles are already set. Men run the world. Men have the power. Men make the decisions. It's always the men that is the stronger one. And when these girls are coming out, who are they looking up to to tell them that that's not the way it has to be? And where better to do that than in sports? All these millions of girls that play sports across the country, they could come out every day, and we're teaching them great things about life skills, but wouldn't it be great if we could teach them to watch how women lead? This is a path for you to take to get to the point where in this country, we have 50% of women in power. We have less, less right now, less than 5% of women are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So yes, when you look at men's basketball and 99% of the jobs go to men, why shouldn't 100 or 99% of the jobs in women's basketball go to women? Maybe it's because we only have 10% women athletic directors in Division I. People hire people who look like them, and that's the problem. Muffin McGraw hit the nail on the head there in a lot of respects. But, Nicole, being a female who covers college sports, you definitely have a unique perspective on this issue. And I'd love to get your reaction to those comments by Muffin McGraw and then your thoughts on kind of the overall lack of female representation in administrative and, and coaching positions in college sports. Yeah, I mean, I was I was really impressed by them. And I think that she is really taking on this role of kind of being an important voice for women in sports. Um, and I, I even think she was asked about this, kind of like that role that Pat Summit used to kind of be and have in, in this in this sports world. Um, and, and it's hard to find anything that's wrong in what she said. Obviously, she came prepared. She had her stats. She was ready to go. And I completely identify with this idea of getting tired of the first woman to do X. The There was even a tweet about like, the seventh woman on an NBA team or something, uh, a coaching staff or whatever it was. And it was like, can we stop counting? Like, it shouldn't be like, a, it, it's not a competition. It's not about that. And I just remember, you know, I think it was like 2013, I did a story. This was pre-Becky Hammond. This is before Jen Welter and all of these, you know, kind of really high profile women were hired by pro teams to, to on their staffs. And it was about like there had been three women who had coached in men's college basketball ever. And they were, I talked to all three of them. They, you know, started a long time ago, like in the early 90s. And 
they thought it would have just kind of opened the floodgates um, or at least just open up more opportunities. And instead, nobody else started doing it. And it's it's really interesting because of Muffet's comments about um, kind of defending her hiring practice, right, of, of saying, like, I don't want to hire men because she is right that people hire people who look like them. And that is a huge reason why in the men's game you see men coaching it um, and not even willing to, to, to think about hiring women um, outside of roles like, you know, director of ops, maybe there's some. Um, and in football, director of ops, same thing. Like there's there's some women, but but they're not necessarily trying to become position coaches. And in basketball, you have this whole group of of candidates and people who coach the women's game or played themselves. So you don't even have that barrier of football where this idea of you have to have your hand in the dirt and you have to have experience or whatever. You have all of that in in, in women's basketball and. Um, so I think, I think she's right. And I think, um, you know, there, there's all sorts of stats that back this up that like, since title nine was implemented, there have been way more men coaching women's sports because there's more money there because of title nine and all of these different things that kind of lead us to the status quo that we're at today. And it is frustrating. And, you know, one other part of her rant, um, that I think was not, maybe not a rant, sorry, just her impassioned speech was about how, you know, you need to support women's sports and cover them. And one thing I'll just say on that point is I think that we should do a better job of that. My job is to cover, you know, men's college football and men's college basketball. So so I can do it sporadically. I can, you know, pitch stories and, and write about, um, you know, women in, in these sports. But I think also... Um, it's, it's important to, to cover women's sports when people are covering them regularly, just as sports. Like I, I always feel like one of the most supportive things I can do, and I'm putting that in air quotes in my, uh, my head, um, is to, you know, if I'm watching the women's final four, which by the way, have been awesome each of the last three years. Like I have been, if I've been out, I've been watching on my phone because like these games have been insane. And I will just react to them. I'm not going to be like, wow, this is a great moment for women's basketball. Because the best thing to do, I think, is to treat it like any amazing sporting event. That's what it should be like. That's what it should be. And, um, you know, I mean, I last two years ago at the Final Four in San Antonio, I was, you know, in bars on the Riverwalk with college basketball coaches watching those games. And they're freaking out at these finishes and these shots made, shots made. And it was just like... This is what it is. It's just a great sporting event. It doesn't have anything to do with gender. And I understand why in certain contexts you have to bring that up. But I also think in the other, the other hand of that is the same thing of like, let's, you don't have to be the first woman to do this. The first one, if you get to the point where it's just great on its own and you don't have to talk about it, that's what we would love to get to. Um, So my answer here is super rambling, but like, I really identify with a lot of what she's talking about. And, you know, obviously as a woman in a male-dominated field, it's a lot of similar things. And you want to be hired and taken seriously because of your perspective and your experience. And you don't want to be the token female person on staff. Or, you know, and I've talked about this with friends who are minorities. You don't want to be the token minority on staff. So I totally understand that element to all of this. Um, And I think it's really important to highlight. And I was really glad that her comments got so much attention um, because all of those points she made are all incredibly valid. 
Yeah, for sure. High high level basketball is, is high level basketball. It doesn't matter if it's men's or women's. It's great product is great product. Yes. So kind of kind of transitioning now into some more fun, just rapid fire uh, questions about college football and college basketball. So the first one, I'm a big Tua fan. Kelly is big. Trevor Lawrence, kind of. Who do you think is better, and kind of who would you take? I think Trevor Lawrence. Winning a national championship as a freshman and like totally not looking like a freshman doing it is terrifying to me um, as, you know, a viewer that he has two more years left at Clemson. Um, So, yeah, if I could take someone right now, I would take him. I mean, what I saw from him and the poise um, and just the accuracy, the 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 arm on him. I love it. That's what I take. If you were Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA for a day and had free reign, what is the one thing about college football or college basketball or just college athletics as a whole that you would look to change? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, we did a poll, we did an anonymous survey during March Madness with college basketball players, and we asked them basically that question, like if you could change a rule in college sports, what would it? And so there's some basketball rules suggested. Um, But a lot of them were talking about, like, name, image, and likeness. And I have always been a proponent of, you know, the Olympic model. I I don't think that because Katie Ledecky is getting sponsored by Tier, you know, swim company, that we should take anything away from her competing at Stanford. Um, And then you would have this amazing athlete as the face of NCAA swimming still. Um, So I would would try to figure that out. I I don't think that it's as complicated as people think. Um, I think if you look at, like, you know, sponsorships and and things like that, basically just profiting off of your own signature, your own likeness. Um, I think there are ways to do that. And I think if you've got smart people in a room, you could figure that out. So I would want to tackle something like that, like something really big and meaningful and that a lot of people um, in, in the system and outside of it, you know, take issue with. With the current makeup of the college football playoff, do you think that a non-Power 5 conference team will ever make it, excluding Notre Dame? No. That was easy. (laughs) (laughs) If UCF's not getting in after the past two seasons they've had, I'm going to have a hard time believing anybody's getting in. Yeah, that that was as close as they're going to get. What is the best college basketball venue you have been to? And then what is the best college football venue you've been to? Uh, so I have not been to, I'll say I've seen Fog Allen, but I've not been there for a game. So this is tainted by that. So I'll go Cameron because, um, I mean, there is nothing like it is so much smaller than you think when you watch it on TV all those years. And then to be there and you guys have seen the photos, like the press row, you're right up. The students are on your back. Like literally you can't wear something that's nice because you'll get paint on your back. Um, and so that is just an unbelievable experience. Um, and I, I, you know, I know I, I, Fog Allen's on the list. I'll get there at some point. You know, I've been to some of the other great venues. Um, you know, I've seen a game Hilton Coliseum, the Izone, you know, all of these places, but Cameron, just the intimacy of that venue is the best. Oh, and then for football, sorry. Um, you've got to say the big house, right? Well, I'm going to, no, I'm not going to be biased because, you know, I, I do love the big house, um, but it's not, it, it's known more for, for right, the, the total amount of people, the rest of Ann Arbor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think Penn State has an amazingly loud and shaking stadium. Um, plus, if you cover that game, they give you ice cream from the creamery, which is phenomenal. Um, but that, like, I mean, those students are insane and they can't, you know, they, they wait in tents and all that. 
their student section is, you know, it's first come, first serve. So it's all these crazy people in the front rows. I mean, these are all the people who come to Penn State for football. Um, and, like, when they do a whiteout game at night, Beaver Stadium is just awesome. Um, and so in my mind, I compared that with um, with LSU and Death Valley for a night game there, too. Like, to me, those are really – they're, in my mind, like a cut above everyone else. And they, they and people talk about them that way, certainly LSU. But they really do live up to that hype. So kind of what do you think is the best coaching job in college football? Let's do college football first. So kind of hypothetically, if every single school in the country said, you know what, we're going to hire a new coach for this upcoming season, which school do you think would be the most desirable opportunity that, that all the best coaches would really try to get? You know, that's a tough one um, because probably before Nick Saban, you wouldn't say Alabama. Um, And, you know, I've been down there and they really had to up their resources because they weren't up there with everyone else. Um, I mean, I think for football, it's got to be like one of the SEC jobs just because of the recruiting territory like Florida. Um, You know, Florida or Florida State like should be powers every single year because of their home base. Um, Miami, you know, similar things. Although Miami... Being a private school, I think, um, you know, has its own challenges and obviously a smaller fan base um, coming to games, not on campus. Um, so I guess one of the Florida schools, if that's an acceptable answer, just because of recruiting. Yeah. And then kind of like the same question for for basketball. Basketball is an interesting one, um, especially coming on the heels of like UCLA's search. Like that should be one of the best jobs in, in college basketball. Um, it's probably still like Indiana. It's probably, you know, it's when you're in that part of the country, basketball just has such a hold over people. Um, so like Indiana and Kentucky, like those are like those calendars of everyone in that state is around the basketball season, not football. Um, you know, Kansas is also right up there. Um, I, I don't know if I have just one for basketball because to me there really is like a top five, like the Blue Bloods, like Duke, Carolina, and the three I just mentioned. Like those really are a cut above. Um, but I would say like overall, and, and maybe it's because Coach K has been at Duke for so long. Like I think, and, and that's why we talked about this for, for many years, who's going to be next at Duke? Because that is such an appealing job. That is such a historic place you get to play, the tradition, um, the, the, the idea of that they can do the one and done thing. They can also do the four year player thing. Like all of that works there. Um, plus these kids, you know, the draw is, is, you know, their parents want that degree at the end of things. So, so I would probably say Duke just because it already is talked about that way. Like why else would we be for the last like 10 years wondering <laughs> who coach K's successor is going to be? Because that's the most high profile job um, and like successor that we're going to see out of this current group of coaches. Okay, Nicole, we just have a couple more because I want to be respectful of your time, but I've been thinking about this one for the past couple of years. The football coach that follows Nick Saban at Alabama will be? Well, I think whoever it is, you want to be the coach that follows the coach that follows Nick Saban, like just putting that out there. It's like Belichick. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to be the guy after. Um, So I thought, and this was more like when they first met in the you know, in the playoff, I thought Dabo would be like, you know, total opposite. Um, but you know, obviously has ties to the program would be a great successor. And now I don't think he's going to leave Clemson. Like he's got a great thing going. They can win at the highest level and they do it like with his stamp, his personality on there. Um, so I actually don't know. 
I mean, he's got a ton of, much like Kay, I mean, you know, Saban has a bunch of assistants that are kind of cutting their teeth as being head coaches now. So you've got to think, like, maybe one of them. Um, but I don't know. And I don't know how much longer he wants to coach because, you know, he seems to still get as much enjoyment as Nick Saban enjoys things um, by coaching. So I, I don't really have an answer for that one. Who do you think? I was thinking Dabo Sweeney as well. But, I mean, he, he's got it so good at Clemson. I don't know why he'd ever leave. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Lane Kiffin. That would be hilarious. <laughs> so kind of just my – my question, my, my, my final question is, so if we gave you a blank check and said, me and Kelly are going to go, we want to go to a bowl game, write our itinerary, which, but the only criteria is that it can't be a BCF or a playoff bowl game. Which one would you send us to? Can I send you to the Rose Bowl or are you saying it, that's not like, that's too obvious? Too, way too obvious. It can't be like one of the BCS <laughs> or, or the playoff games. It has to be one of the random ones on like a Wednesday at 2 o'clock on ESPN. Okay, well, I mean, there's the Bahamas Bowl. Like, yep. that's the one. <laughs> that's the one you want to go to. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The bowl games, like, you know, some of the ones, they're in like strange locations or they're in, um, I don't know, they're in the desert, they're in Shreveport, they're wherever. Um, you know, I actually haven't covered a ton of non-BCS ones. Like when I was a student at Michigan, I covered the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville. Um, and I would not send you there because Jacksonville for New Year's is not the most exciting place. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the Belk Bowl has a great Twitter account. They would give you things to do. Those guys behind there are very fun. Um, maybe the Outback. I feel like that one's interesting. Um Plus, you could maybe, like, my friend Ryan Nanny dressed up as the Bloomin' Onion one year. <laughs> they let him do that. So maybe Outback. I'll go with that. Like, they seem to have a good sense of humor, and maybe you could dress up as, like, the Bloomin' Onion, you know, in the third quarter, just like he did. Well, speaking of the Blooming Onion, uh, my final question, it might be two answers. Maybe it's the same thing. What is the best meal, and what is the most unique meal that you've eaten while on the college beat? Well, Ann Arbor has lots of great Restaurants. I will just put that out there. Zingerman's, obviously the classic, but there's more beyond that. Um, so, like, that's something, like, when I get a trip back to Michigan, like, I'm like, yes, like, we're going to Zingerman's. Um, I mean, I think one of the more unique things is, like, anytime you go to Madison, getting cheese curds, like, they are just phenomenal. Um, I've had some, like, very down south, like, um, delicious southern cooking, like, in Lexington and, like, I've had, you know, gumbo and Baton Rouge. All of that stuff is amazing. Actually, you know, the food and because if you do Baton Rouge, you're like an hour outside of New Orleans. So you can stay in New Orleans, you know, maybe except game night. Um, so that's probably the best food setup <laughs> if you're covering a game or going somewhere because literally everything in New Orleans is delicious. Um, I, you know, I've also had really great meals in Nashville covering the SEC tournament. That's also excellent. Um a weirdest meal though I don't know I'm not like the craziest of eaters um the the weirdest meal I've ever eaten as a sports writer though is the summer I interned at the Cape Cod Times I covered the Cape Cod Baseball League so that's like all the you know future stars like this is the you know premier college baseball league and one of the venues in Yarmouth Yarmouthport had a burger that's on donuts so like you'd have like a jelly donut like on the as the buns and a burger with like cheese whiz it was it sound, sounds disgusting honestly tastes delicious so that is definitely the weirdest thing i've ever eaten like while covering an event 
not sure I'd want to try that, but that definitely sounds like one of those funky foods they'd serve in a college town. I mean, when you're like when you're like 19 or 20 and you eat everything, that's the time to do it. Well, Nicole, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm really glad we were able to to do this. I'm a big fan of yours. I know David's a big fan of yours as well, and, and we wish you success moving forward. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much. That'll do it for episode 18 of the Double Double. Thank you for listening. If you guys wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes, five stars would be much appreciated. If you don't have an iPhone and you have a Droid or listen on some other device, we're also available on Spotify and SoundCloud. If you have any feedback for the show, you can reach us on Twitter. Our handle is DBL underscore DBL podcast. And or you can email us at double double four zero two at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Take care and make it a great day.